0: This week on the My Love of Golf podcast, we talked to my great golfing mate, Peter Hackett. Peter Hackett and I have known each other for about 15 years, and it was our careers at Mercedes-Benz that drew, drew us together. But it's our passion and love for the game of golf that keeps us as mates. We catch up now and then when he's in town for a game of golf, and I thought that his story would be one that you'd love to hear. I won't say too much about it now, but basically it's one of those great stories of a young man from Sydney, New South Wales, who packs up, leaves the country to chase his dreams. When he's not golfing, you'll find Pete usually with his backside in a Mercedes-Benz sports car, racing in the Australian GT Series for the Eggleston Motorsport team in a super-hot Mercedes-Benz AMG GT, or you'll find him doing his other job as the chief instructor for the Mercedes-Benz Drive Academy, which operates in Australia and all throughout Southeast Asia. So the chances are if you've had a car of that brand, you may have met Pete at a racetrack or one of his team and had a great time under his guidance and control driving around a car very fast with Pete. That's Pete. You can't miss him. Blonde hair, big smile, very warm and engaging and one hell of a golfer. Plays off around one or two or scratch maybe uh, the last time I played with him. So he's pretty competitive, loves his equipment, and just loves a game of golf. But when he's not golfing, he is extreme. So, sit back, relax. Enjoy the chat with Pete Hackett. Once again, we had some opportunity to make some video. And we'll be pushing some content out onto YouTube. So please jump onto YouTube, onto the My Love of Golf channel. And very shortly, you'll see some video with Pete. And the super podcast studio that we had for the day. The AMG GTC. If you ever want to get a car that's unbelievable, check out the AMG GTC. It is hot. Anyway, that's the come. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the My Love of Golf podcast for this week with my guest, Peter Hackett. <clears throat> Woo! Pete Hackett, welcome to the My Love of Golf podcast. On video. <laughs> On video. We should be able to get the video out of, uh, out of this and make it, uh, make it look fantastic, but for the audio purposes of what we're doing, I'll just paint the scene. Well, maybe you can paint the same, Pete. Where is our mobile podcast studio today, mate?
1: Well, the office, the sound recording studio today, is uh, in the cockpit of a matte grey AMG GTC Roadster. So we're talking about a 415-kilowatt rear-wheel drive, four-wheel steer AMG convertible. Um, We have the roof up to make sure that the birds that are tweeting around us while we're down at uh, the National Golf Club don't uh, disrupt our podcast. Now, Pete, just confirm one thing. You love golf, don't you? If I wasn't any good at driving cars, I'd be playing golf. How long have you been playing golf, Pete? Uh, I think my earliest memory of playing golf was uh, probably around eight or nine. Um, I was very lucky when we were younger we lived at uh, a place in Sydney in the southern suburbs called Carilla and we backed onto Carilla Public Golf Course in fact. I remember uh, digress a little bit here at one point watching the the pro am and Brett Ogle was playing there. He was the big draw card. I think he had 85, but anyway, we were um, I used to go down there every afternoon and pick up golf balls out of the creek and Um, You know, just hit a few wedges around because it was a public golf course it was cheap to go to and it was a safe place for us. So ever since uh, I can remember being allowed out of the house alone, um, you know, the golf course was the place that I used to go.
0: Sounds like a pretty familiar journey for a lot of us young golfers, (laughs) you know, finding our way to the golf course as a kid, searching in creeks for golf balls and, you know, falling in love with the game by just being in and around other Adults and other junior golfers and and you know having fun basically, you know That was what I I remember about golf as a kid Did you? um, Play a lot of junior golf a lot of junior competitive golf as a young fella.
1: Yeah, I was uh, lucky enough to be part of the Junior pennants team Um, I then joined Cronulla Golf Club and I played junior pennants at the Cronulla Golf Club as well, which was a really great place to be in fact um Paul Riley who's made a career out of golf was there at the time and Wayne used to hang around a little bit with Paul at, at various points in time but um you know it was the competition I was always a, a sporty young kid that uh, just wanted to win wanted to be better I wanted to whether it was in soccer or football whether it was in you know go-karts or motorbikes I just just had to win I wanted to win and it wasn't wasn't about the trophy it wasn't about the 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 records of the accolades it was just about being better Um, I realized pretty early on with golf that I couldn't beat the guys that were playing number one in pennants you know even on my best day I was two or three shots off the the guys that that were playing number one in the squad and as much as I wanted to be better at, at playing golf I realized that the challenge was going to be there for me for a very very long time and that challenge still burns inside me today so then As a golfer,
0: you know, and you uh, you said before, you realised that, you know, you probably weren't of a skill to go and do that professionally. Tell us what you do professionally now. What does a day look like for Pete Hackett?
1: Well, there's uh, a couple of aspects to my life. I guess the the main part is my role as the chief driving instructor for Mercedes-Benz in Southeast Asia. So I run all of the events for the brands Mercedes-Benz and AMG at racetracks around Southeast Asia. So if we're doing a product launch or a customer experience or an AMG performance drive day, where customers try and extract the most out of their passenger cars. We have a fleet of cars that we take so they don't have to use their own cars and myself and a team of guys and girls that I take with me will, you know, teach people, I guess a little bit like your local golf coach, how to um, find a way around a racetrack and how to, you know, use the cars as they're designed to be used, a bit like using the bounce on your wedge in a chip shot, for example. Uh, In addition to that, I am also uh, lucky enough to race an AMG in the Australian GT Championships, an AMG GT3, so it's the racing version of the car we're sitting in right now, albeit left-hand drive. Uh, So we have uh, a number of races around Australia and in the past New Zealand as well. There's a sprint and an endurance championship. We just had four races at the uh, Melbourne Grand Prix supporting the Formula One just a few weeks back. Did pretty, um, well. did pretty well? Yeah, won one of the races there. I had a second, a third and a sixth when we had a, a small visibility issue. Um, but we again, I expect to win. So did pretty well. We were second for the weekend. Some say that's pretty well, it's not good enough for me, but it's okay. We've got Perth in two weeks' time. As uh, as you get older, you become more accepting of the results that you end up with, but it doesn't stop you from trying harder. So, I have a motorsport career, I have a, a career running driving events, and I have this ambition to be better at golf.
0: Not a bad little trifecta of things to keep you busy, mate.
1: (laughs) I must say. One's really frustrating, though. The other two just (laughs) happen.
0: No, but but fortunately for me, you know, we've known each other for coming up for 19 years, which is a long time. It seems like.
1: You don't look any different.
0: No, thank you. Neither do you. (laughs) I think we're both still 24, aren't we? But, uh, you know, through that journey that we've known each other, you know, cars, a shared passion for cars and a shared passion for golfers, I guess what's brought us together and kept us. You know, even though we don't see each other a lot over maybe some of those years, you know, we always link back up and have a chat about golf. And it's great to come and have a have a hit today with you at your uh, home course down here at the National. One of my favourite tracks of all time and one of my favourite just golfing destinations. You know, let's go back to, you know, that young Pete Hackett in Sydney. When, when did you realise, OK, golf... When did the motorsport part of your life become, you know, so important? Uh,
1: it was. It was happening at the same time. Um, my mother was a teacher. My father was a, a Qantas pilot. So there was a, a very distinct effort to, from them, to allow me to do anything that I wanted. But I had to have an education behind me. So after school, I had to do something in a tertiary capacity. Um, I chose to do exercise or sports science, and uh, initially I actually chose golf coaching as the first year of my sports science degree, and it was around about then, so I must have been 19, that um, the motorsport side of things became really quite serious, and I quickly changed from coaching slash golf sports science to exercise physiology sports science, and then um, focused on Using the exercise physiology, which was psychology, diet, dietitian, um, exercise, and understanding how the human body works to help me become fitter and stronger for motorsport. And at the same time, um, the golf coaching side of things, you know, I I still wasn't a good enough golfer to be able to be the coach that I wanted to be. You know, I I couldn't demonstrate the shots that I was going to need to teach the people that I wanted to teach with the regularity that I wanted to teach it, even though I understood it and I could maybe do it uh, one time out of 20, I just, you know, I, I just wasn't good enough. And I accept that. And, and I'm, I'm like, I guess, most golfers prepared to spend money and train and, and get lessons to be the person that I want to be. It is, it is more than a hobby for me. It's a passion and it's something that I use to escape the real world and it's something that I use to motivate myself.
0: So, how did the motorsport journey start? Motorcycles, motor cars, four wheels, two wheels.
1: Yeah, two wheels. Motocross at four. Um, you know, my father had a passion for engines as a as a pilot. So he liked cars, boats, bikes, planes. Um, you know, had a small dispose a small amount of disposable income. Um, you know, could buy an old bike and tinker with the engine and sell it for a little or small profit. So we always had, um, you know, cars that he was trading in and out of, or bikes that he was buying in and out of. And when we were old enough to literally ride a bike, he he had bikes and he wanted us to go riding with him. So it was a little bit of a bonding exercise. I have a younger brother; he's now my older brother, um, <laughs> and uh, that um, you know gave us some family time, and it's just what you're kind of born into and know and learn and love
0: and the progression from two wheels to four wheels how did that uh
1: yeah start? well it's uh around about i don't know it must have been 13 or 14 um i think the crusty demons must have come to town and we started doing crazy things on motorbikes you know triple jumps and and backflips and all of these things that they just don't end well let's face it and we identified that or i think my mum identified that fairly early and said look i'm happy with you guys going off and doing your thing but i'd feel better if you relied on gravity to keep you on the ground most of the time as opposed to you defying gravity and relying (laughs) on it to put you back down there so dad bought a go-kart actually and um we did some club level go-karting and he he was involved in a crash where a go-kart ran up over the back of him and he came out of this accident, nobody was hurt, but on the back of his helmet was a big acceleration mark from a tyre, and he made a decision instantly that he didn't like being exposed to other carts and hard objects around him, and he decided that he was going to get us a car and put a roll cage in it, so we bought a Datsun 1600, um, he could play with the engine, he could put a roll cage in it, and we could go and do the same things we were doing on bikes and carts, but in relative safety with a a roll cage around us and that was how the transition occurred
0: so that's essentially how you learned to uh, drive a car like this sideways at speed
1: (laughs) the problem was that we did a a club super sprint I think it was at Oran Park and dad said oh yeah I think I was 16 Um, I got a special permit to drive it and he said yeah you can go and have a go and I think on my first outing in the car I was two and a half seconds a lap quicker than he'd ever been in it and I came back in, and he pat me on the shoulders and said, That's really good. you've just gone two and a half seconds quicker than I've ever been. You're never driving this one again, and I never got to drive it again
0: <laughs> so the The journey as a motorsport professional has taken you you know all around the world and earlier on when we were playing golf, we spoke about one of your early mentors, Jim Russell, who you know unfortunately really passed away and I knew I know that you were um, you know saddened by that loss because he was such a big factor in your early part of your motorsport career so what did Jim Russell mean to you and and how did he influence you through those early days mate
1: it's funny you don't think about those things until they're not there anymore um you just take it for granted you know there's the the Butch Harmon school of golf or the the Ledbetter way of coaching or or whoever it is that that brings you in or coaches you or is that that shining light that provides you with an opportunity and um you know the Jim Russell Racing Driver School at Donington Park in the UK was exactly that. It's a global school where young people, old people, anybody can go to learn to be a racing driver. All you need to do is to pay a relatively small amount to go and get coached in exist with existing infrastructure and if you like it then you get the bug and you keep going. And if you're really good then they encourage you to be bigger, better, faster, stronger and I was that guy that um, someone said, hey, that's pretty special. You should try and do some more and literally gave up everything that I had, sold everything that I had and put, it all, my eggs, put all my eggs into one basket and did a, a one-week intensive training program in the UK, which was really my first exposure to international motorsport. Um, and I did quite well there and somebody found me again and said, hey, you should come back every month to our to our uh, returnees races there's a, a scholarship at the end of the year that we think you could do well in I had no plans to be there more than 5-6 days I stayed in England 5 years racing full time um, you know you just find a way they, they found a, a bedroom for me to well, in fact they didn't they found a hallway for me to sleep in for the first 6 months you know a mattress in somebody's house and I worked for nothing as an instructor and worked for Contra basically, the money I would have earned instructing and on training as an instructor they put back into a a racing program which would get me into these returnees races to give me some more racing experience and ultimately get me into enter the World Scholarship in 8 months time which I then won and uh, that gave me a fully fledged racing season representing Jim Russell Racing Driver School as their World Scholarship winner. And representing General Motors Vauxhall in the UK uh, supporting the British Touring Car Championship you know this was uh, the the big league so what year are we talking about here uh, and I won the scholarship in 96 and raced in 97 so you know so it's a, it's, a, it's a long time ago but we all start somewhere and uh, this was the heyday of British touring cars you know I remember my first race at Donington Park there was uh, I think 65,000 people there uh, watching, and here I am, this 20-year-old, 21-year-old kid, you know, on the other side of the world with nothing but a helmet and a suitcase representing Jim Russell Racing Driver School. It was kind of surreal.
0: Now, for the golfers that listen to the podcast that, you know, don't know Donington Park, it's not just any small <laughs> race track to go and, you know, debut and, you know, Tear the field a new one.
1: It's like turning up at Beth Plage Black. <laughs>
0: exactly right. <laughs> you know, it's been probably the scene of so many monumental motorsport races, be it on, you know, 500 ccs Mick doing, you know, I remember yeah. watching Mick doing, getting sideways around there. Um, the F1s haven't been there? No,
1: a... no, not F1, they did MotoGP, they yeah. did 500 ccs uh, World Superbikes, British Touring Cars, uh, Formula 3. Yeah. Um, it, it's it's was the home of motorsport for a long time in the UK. Silverstone, Donington Brands, mm. they're the big three. So, mm. what a place! What a place to start and to call home. You know, um, yeah. uh, Tom Wheatcroft was the owner of the facility. Had an enormous car collection there. Um, so as a youngster, I was actually, and a lot of the skills that I learnt as a youngster playing golf, I actually got to take through with me because as I was learning to be an instructor, I was then also hosting museum tours um i was working in the kitchen i was you know cleaning up in the restaurants. so i was sleeping in transporters just doing whatever it was to live day to day and at donington park i literally lived in a truck that was parked in the back of the paddock at donington park um and i kind of worked out really quickly if i got really friendly with the catering girls in the restaurant and the guys in the catering that any food that was left over at the end of the day they'd sort of instead of throwing it out they'd give it your way and you could (laughs) eat for free a little bit so you know it's um it's the things that you you appreciate now that you don't think about at the time to um that that give you the desire to be what it is that you want to be and i think I think people see that in you i i didn't didn't think anything of it at the time, you know pinching a bread roll off the off the um the tray as they were throwing them out kind of thing that wasn't something that that bothered me, but I think the management sort of saw that. I had no money and I was sleeping in a truck and literally taking bread rolls off trays before they threw them out to, um, to survive. So move forward to now, you know,
0: I think I know the answer, but do you credit that experience, you know, as something that drives you and has given you this, you know, what I see from what I know and what I watch and what I know of you, that entrepreneurial edge? Do you th- um, do you, do you, what, my-
1: how do you, what do you learn from that? And what is it, what does it? Give to you as an as an adult? I, I don't see myself as an entrepreneur, I just see myself as passionate and dedicated. So okay. anything that I want to do, I'll do whatever it takes to get it. Yeah. And anything that that I don't know about, I'm prepared to learn, to go to the bottom level, to sit, you know, to to wipe to polish people's shoes, to learn the ropes, to understand how something works, to be more involved in whatever that aspect is, to be better for it. So for example you know, if, if you crash a race car, I don't mind, or, or they're doing an engine change or whatever it is. I don't mind being there almost all night with the guys. How does that work? How, why are you changing that? How, 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 does, how does that bracket attach to the bumper bar? Because I think somehow having that knowledge sitting in the back of your mind, you know, if you're involved in a door-to-door battle and you understand that that's a fragile part of the car and that's a strong part of the car and that's a disposable part of the car, that you make informed, instinctive decisions based on the information that you have. And the more you know and the more you absorb, the better your ability to make correct instinctive decisions is and the better you become over time. So, you know, being immersed in um, the product or the brand or the, whatever it is that you're doing, gives you a competitive advantage and that ultimately leads to being more time efficient or better at what it is you're doing. So if you understand how a wheel speed sensor works, um, which is when the wheel rotates and there's a sensor that picks up how often the wheel rotates, maybe you have a brake failure and you get on the radio and you say, oh, my brakes have failed, but you can say, well, it's strange because I think there was a wheel speed sensor fail first because I saw the speedo didn't work for a couple, it flickered a couple of times, and then I had a brake failure. Mm-hmm. So that small piece of information, which is oh, something wasn't quite right, and I saw this, this, and this, I think it might be a wheel speed sensor. Could save a day's worth of investigating yeah. just because you have a better understanding of what's going on.
0: So with that understanding, you know, moving from you know the British uh, racing environment. Where where did that journey take you then? Let's talk about your motorsport career a little bit more. And
1: well, I went I went as far as I could in the UK. I had a free seat with Vauxhall Junior, which is the English version of Formula Ford. Um, I then did Formula Vauxhall, which is a, a wings and slicks category. I did some touring car stuff over there, also with Vauxhall. And the next step for me, really, this is now two thousand year 2000, was to go to British Formula 3, and that a, was a million pounds back then to do that. And as a race driver, you know, you're in an equipment-dependent sport. You need to have the best gear, you need to have the budget, and you either need to have the money or you don't have the gear. Um, you either need to back yourself to find the money, or you need to go and choose another sport. Um, I didn't have the sponsorship. We tried. Um, we had some good networks from my years racing for Vauxhall, but... Ultimately I went as far as I could before needing a million dollars, a million pounds. Mm. So at that point I was come back to Australia with my tail between my legs quite literally. I did did the best I could. I couldn't go any further. Maybe I'll pick something up in Australia. And at that point in time the Mercedes-Benz Driving Academy was beginning and I'd had some experience working for Mercedes-Benz in England as a instructor at some of the venues they have over there. And I just became an instructor in Australia for Mercedes Benz. And I was working for another number of other manufacturers as well, just doing drive phase and stuff. And at one of those particular events for Porsche on the Gold Coast, I came into contact with uh, a lady called Betty Klamenka, who some people might know from Erebus Racing. And we formed a a very strong bond, her and her husband and myself. We began Erebus as people know it today. And uh, we had a partnership that lasted nearly 11 years. So the next chapter, which was moving into formula three in the year 2000 was with was with betty Mm. um we won the australian formula three championship in 2001 i then won the australian formula 3000 or formula holden championship in 2005. i went to macau represented australia in i think it was oh one as well and finished sixth in the world cup event in macau um which is fantastic, really, when you look back at the results of that uh, top 20, of the top 20 drivers that went to Macau, uh, I think there's something like 15 went to Formula One and of the top 10, eight of them went to Formula One and I finished sixth. So, you know, pretty good company. Mm. Um, When you look at it like that, it was literally just the money that stopped us. So then,
0: we started racing the SLS going?
1: Yeah, so 05 uh, won Formula Holden and at the same time got picked up by Lamborghini Australia to assist them with their 24-hour campaign at Bathurst mm-hmm. alongside Paul Stokel, Alan Simonson and, and Luke Yulden, who some of you might know won the Bathurst 1000 two years ago with Erebus. Um, I raced then in sports cars for Lamborghini for from 05 to 2010, I think it was, 2011 maybe. Um, that was all with Erebus Uh, and then Mercedes-Benz introduced or AMG introduced the SLS GT3 and uh, Erebus decided to invest in uh, an AMG as part of their racing program instead of the Lambo that we had been racing. It aligned with my uh, role at Mercedes-Benz as a as a chief driving instructor which had happened along the way in that time frame as opposed to just being a regular instructor and so for the first time as well as representing Mercedes-Benz in front of customers I could now represent them on a racetrack as well and the SLS came to town and uh, we ran second in the Australian GT Championship in the SLS GT3 Um, we brought a second car in for James Brock who raced alongside me as well and then the management of Erebus decided they wanted to go into V8 supercars and at that point um, there was a fundamental shift in views on motorsport. My opinion was that that m- the brand that I'd built around AMG and Mercedes-Benz was to stay in sports cars and they wanted to go off and do um, V8 supercars and, and we had a, a, a general... Break in in direction, essentially, a split. Mm. Um, And I stayed in sports cars and they went off and and did their V8 stuff.
0: I guess at that time, and I remember, you know, correct me if I'm wrong and feel free to, you know, it was probably a challenging, a little bit of a challenging time for you at that time or it was just a business decision or?
1: No, 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 it was very challenging because you build relationships over time. And and when you have your friends involved in the business and, and you don't see eye to eye, it's always difficult to feel that you're not being not it's not respected but not being taken as you once were so Mm. i guess when without wanting to sound spoiled when you don't get what it is that you've been working towards and someone says no we're now going in this direction it's like well hang on why is there this sudden shift what what's changed and you begin to question yourself a little bit
0: moving out of that you know i guess for me what is apparently clear is that you the the relationship that you had built with the people at AMG was of a strength that you know your relationship was able to be continued albeit in another team environment with a new car with a new setup is that yeah is that pretty much how I how I saw it
1: yeah I mean uh, they they have been very supportive of man and ultimately my motorsport and my public persona with amg are very separate although they're in, mm-hmm. in uh, they're definitely linked in some way shape or form because i'm I'm involved in both but i literally wear two hats i have a motorsport hat and i have my driving events hats and you know i try very hard and and we have a very good understanding that I, we'll try not to 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 cross the boundary if i'm talking motorsport i talk motorsport if i'm talking driving events i'm talking driving events and um, we try not to blur the line between those two. If the public perception is there's a blurred line, then then so be it, but you know, that's, uh, that level of professionalism I think is what's kept that level of respect and, and kept me in the, both roles.
0: Your current team, so there's a number of people that are supporting that um, tilt at the title this year. Who, who are they? Who, who, so, who gets involved in you know, running a motorsport?
1: Yeah, so so we have Eggleston Motorsport, which is an incredibly professional operation. They've been around a long time running the Level 2 Super 2 V8 Supercar Championship. Um, They've had a strong association with Triple Eight over the years, running cars for Paul Dumbrell, for example, who was Jamie Wincup's co-driver. So in in an attempt to keep Jamie, for example, with a co-driver who's fresh and consistent and up-to-date with the way the cars are operating the teams run a satellite operation, essentially, and then mm-hmm. he gets to race in the Level 2. Mm-hmm. Uh, Paul Dunrell would run in the Level 2 championships. Will Brown's there this year, for example. So these very professional teams run as offshoots, and they run a number of different categories. So I've known these, uh, Ben and Rachel, from Eggleston Motorsport for, again, 15 years, f- Family f- uh, friends that you now consider family after a long time in the industry, and they saw uh, an opportunity to represent my brand and to represent mercedes and amg at the front and uh, we came up with a plan to enter the amg gt3 that you i'm sure will have some information up about from the grand prix Um, and we have some backers that get involved put some signage on the car they get involved with some networking associated with like-minded people in a performance environment uh, premium brands And uh, you know, we we all go racing and do the best we can.
0: Okay, so we talked about hats and wearing you know, different hats. We talked about partners in racing. (laughs) You know where I'm going. You've been able to incorporate one of your golf partners into becoming one of your racing partners. How did that come
1: about? (laughs) PXG, yes. So. My passion for golf is is quite clear, and uh, you know the way you network your opportunities is is no secret. I was a I'm, I've always been a big fan of unique products, whether it's a, a brand like Hyt Watches, for example. Um,
0: Sensational looking arm piece, uh, watch uh,
1: timepiece. Let me tell you that. Um, I like to be first. I don't like to follow any trends. Um, There has to be a reason for it and I won't go for it just because it's shiny for example but you know the story behind Parsons Extreme Golf PXG really resonated with me you know a a guy that liked technology kept buying the latest of everything couldn't find the stuff that he wanted questioned why he spent so much money on golf equipment and suddenly went I'm just going to do this myself and goes out and poaches the the two best guys from TaylorMade, the two best guys from ping and says hey guys you've got five years no budget build me the best so i don't have to keep buying crap every year you know i'm like wow that's that's the kind of stuff i want to have that's the kind of brand that i want to be i want to be associated with the best of the best without compromise so i just literally invested in uh i had some bonus money from some good results in motorsport and i get people want to give me stuff (laughs) But I went and bought myself a set of golf clubs. I went and bought a set of PXGs. I went for a fitting, I bought a set of golf clubs and I loved them. I had them for a year and a half. I was one of the first sets that were in the country. And I love people asking me, Well, what's DXG? What's what's what is that? where are they from? You know, I don't like people going, Oh, that's a set of legacies or, you know, that's a set of AP2s. How do you find them? I like people saying, What the hell are they? So I had them for 18 months, but uh, like all things technical, they came out with a gen two. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I didn't have such a good year last year. I can't afford to upgrade, but I really want the new stuff. So I just approached them and I said, hey guys, you know, I've got this great passion. I've got this following I've this is what I do. This is where I'm at. Um, you know, I'm a believer. Is there a way that we can incorporate my business and your business and and perhaps, um you know we can leverage off each other and the theory was really quite simple i'll i'll trade in my old set of golf clubs if uh if the new ones appear to be better on trackman in the fitting and and maybe you can upgrade me for free and i'll give you some signage on the race car and let's get some like-minded people together and and start talking about pxg a little bit more and uh fortunately for me they like the idea so uh it's um it's a great brand to be associated with. I think um, the days of people being scared of spending money on on hobbies is is not as bad as it once was. You know, um, a lot of people are spending eight nine hundred dollars on a tailor-made driver every year now. So I think if you find the right equipment and you find the right thing, it's okay to spend a little bit more and get the one that you want. And uh, and pxg for me was that and the fact that i was an early adopter you know i was an early believer just made it a little bit a little bit easier i'm not i'm not i can't be bought i'm not the sort of person that you know is going to feel comfortable standing there hitting a um a pink um what's that brand is a crappy golf ball brand that everybody's saying comes out of china or something i, I i'm just you could give me a yeah. hundred dozen of these Golf balls called George that are exactly like a Pro V one, but they're half the price. It's, it's just not me. I'm not. I'd rather go and buy Pro V ones to be honest. Mm. But, but um, you know, in PXG, I was lucky enough for people to give me what I wanted, and I wanted to represent.
0: So the guys at Pureform look after that relationship with you uh, in partnership with you
1: yeah and it's more than just that i mean you know i like to be associated and involved with them they'll they'll do some point of sale things we've done some competitions where people will be involved and buy a set of clubs and go for a game with myself or other ambassadors like maybe guy sebastian or brennan goddard um they'll bring guests to the races and you know they're all like-minded people they love golf they are passionate about their equipment. they've invested in pxg and um you know i am I'm, I'm enjoying that right now
0: so we had a little bit of a rundown of your kit there today and there's some some pretty impressive uh, looking bits of kit in there the part that struck out to me was you know you're a fan and of the um it's the steel fiber mm-hmm. graphite steel infused shaft uh that one's always intrigued me It's uh, the. It, the one then the fitting bay that i always go to when i have you know a club of one of the other brands there um that's fitted with that shaft and it feels great and it, it intrigues me i've always wanted to put it in my gaming clubs i never have but after seeing and feeling yours today it's probably going to be not too long before i go and have a have a go of the steel fiber shafts
1: yeah it was it was something that um i remember seeing it for the first time on the pga tour um i think it was was it Snedeker or mm-hmm. Kucher or one of those guys was using it. I didn't think too much about it because when I was growing up playing golf, graphite shafts were for the old guys that needed the extra flex. Mm. Um, but, you know, I saw them on tour and I remember hearing that they were extraordinarily expensive initially when they were first introduced. And when I went for my first fitting, i have had S300s and... You know, I can't, uh, the KBSs just didn't have the right kick point for me. And my old AP2s, I had S300s and I tried, you know, a whole heap of different things. Anyway, at the fitting they just said, why don't you try steel fibres? You know, just helps the ball launch a little higher initially. Um, My swing speed's what I would call average. Um, I can just handle an S but I've never been able to handle an extra stiff shaft and um the numbers worked out really well so for me it's been um it's something that i i think the, and i like the look of them to be perfectly honest with with a black head from the extreme dark on the pxg and a carbon graphite shaft a dark gray i think it's a really nice looking club to stand over and sometimes that's half the battle if you stand over something and go holy shit sorry that's ugly um you're not going to hit it well you've got to like the look of it and i think yeah. they're a pretty looking combination
0: well they certainly work pretty well today in the main, you know, I think. Um, you know today probably wasn't uh, either of our best friends of golf but you know you can certainly see that you know as a three handicapper that uh, you know you've got you've got the game and golf's something that we've you know unless you're playing for big bucks it's just an evolving game that you have to keep working on you agree
1: oh absolutely and and for me that's That's part of the challenge. I really enjoy, I'm fortunate that I get a lot of time off, um, especially around the Australian summer months, there's no racing and not a lot of work. So I enjoy having the ability on a day where there's nothing to do, where traditionally you might waste it by sleeping in or sitting on the beach or doing nothing. I enjoy going to the range and taking two or 300 golf balls and working on my swing and working on something, just having the ability to focus on something the the mental training the doing whatever it is that that I need to do is uh, is something that really I think helps me in motorsport as well because it just puts you in the zone helps you focus
0: talking about training for motorsport is that something that uh, what what does that regimen look like
1: Uh, at the moment it's a little bit of um, long slow distance so um, you know maybe an hour go for an hour hour and 10 minute runs at 60% max heart rate Um, so it might be a 10k run basically 2 or 3 times a week Uh, a couple of times a week I'll do some beach sprints just to get some lactic acid into me and uh, I've been told that as much golf as I can play is going to be the best thing I can do (laughs) where's um,
0: some of the best courses you've played what do your golf experiences look like around the globe around australia
1: i was lucky uh lucky enough to be able to travel with a friend of mine um through america a couple of times a year in the past um i played pga national tpc sawgrass played whistling Straits, played uh uh, the medalist um so we we had a little bit of a golf tour that was uh you know, a couple of courses either in the middle east, west or middle of of the USA and we'd go over for two or three days at a time. So for me that was was something that I really cherished. Um, Once a year there's a boys' trip that goes up to the Gold Coast and we play those iconic Gold Coast courses. We're lucky enough to play the Pines, um, Sanctuary Cove, um, places like Lakelands, Brookwater, um, the Glades in the past we've been to as well. So there's always a... A random number of courses up there that we'll play. Maybe Royal Queensland um, is on the list there. Uh, when I was playing junior golf in Sydney, you know, I was lucky enough to play Royal Sydney, New South Wales. You know, all of those iconic courses that that have shaped um, the the lakes, for example, mm-hmm. um, have shaped the landscape of golf in in New South Wales. I've been down in Barm Bugle and played down there, which was an extraordinary experience. We've got these three incredible courses here at the National. So, I mean, we're not sport for great golf, very close to home in Australia. Um, And if you're lucky enough to get across the ditch to New Zealand, there's some incredible courses there, Kidnappers, for example, which is on my very short list to play in the very near future.
0: I'm still the only guy in Melbourne that hasn't played Barnboogle, so I'm glad to hear you've played (laughs) Barnboogle.
1: It was windier than today.
0: (laughs) I will get down there. Mate, so let's talk Mercedes-Benz because as I said right at the start that's where we met can't believe it, it's still 19 years ago. Your role as a chief driving instructor for Southeast Asia so in Australia as well as other parts of you know the Asia Pacific re- region. I guess you know I spent 11 years of my life representing that brand and you know I worked pretty hard to you know knock on the door and work there and have a career there. I enjoyed it, I enjoyed the brand, you know, I was very passionate about it. My love for Mercedes-Benz stemmed from my childhood, my dad driving my, his boss's Mercedes-Benz and me being infatuated by you know, a car whose windows went up and down by pressing buttons. You know, that was to me unbelievable. You know we've seen some pretty cool stuff in terms of Mercedes-Benz cars and you experience that at a whole nother level with your driving instructor you know, role what is it about a Mercedes-Benz in a few short sentences that make it so alluring and special?
1: I mean, that's, that's, I think there's only one first. There's only one brand that invents something. There's only one, and Mercedes-Benz invented the car. You know, let's, let's start from the very, very beginning. When you sit behind the wheel of a Mercedes-Benz, you just know that that was the first one the first four-wheeled motorized vehicle was a mercedes-benz and from that stems a passion and a belief to have cars that are evolving but also represent the epitome of the industry whether it's safety technology efficiency comfort Um, and they just managed to grow their business to the point where it can now represent everybody once upon a time it was just the car that your dad would drive on behalf of somebody else. Now it's a car that everybody can aspire to own and can actually own because there is one for everybody. And times have changed from, you know, those jealous moments where you might look at a car, at somebody in a car and think, you know, I wish that could be me and now it can really Mm -hmm. be you. You know, you can get into a Mercedes-Benz and A-Class and an A200, for example, and it has the same star, it has the same steering wheel, it has a lot of the same technology as as the S class the the flagship of the the range and gives you the same sensation it gives you the same sense of pride you work for it you you know if you if you want to be if you believe in nice things and you want nice things then it makes you feel feel like you've got nice things but also from a a safety point of view you've given yourself the best chance to survive should you know something untoward happen you know knowing that you are absolutely in the safest vehicle is something that's very refreshing. You
0: do a great speech at the start of the drive day experience uh, presentations which you know really is a a thing that gets everyone focused on the product and focus on what they're about to experience that day and a lot of that discussion is around you know this new technology that's available in a Mercedes-Benz. What are the advancements that have been made and what are the current cars you know? this has got pretty much everything but you know in the majority of that mercedes-benz product range what, what does a customer get that's, that is going to save their life
1: well i think i think what would be of most interest to the people that are listening now is the understanding that more than half the cars that we sell have the ability to stop go and steer by themselves right now mm-hmm. on the road so mm-hmm. if you're driving along and listening to this and you look at the mercedes-benz around you if it's a current generation car and the operator has activated the system correctly, there's a fair chance that that car is stopping, going, and steering without any input from the driver, just using the cameras and sensors and radars around it to create a certain level of assistance uh, as we head towards autonomous driving. So Mm. for me, the move towards autonomous driving as we head on this path Towards electric autonomous driving is, is what's really exciting and and having systems and understanding the, the detail to which the brand goes in assuring that nothing is left unturned, so to speak. You know, adaptive rear brake lights, making sure that you know, if the driver brakes with more than about 80% efficiency, the rear brake lights flash, so the cars around you know that car is stopping really quickly. Uh, intelligent rear lights with light sensors in them so that because they're now LEDs the the cars read the ambient light and you don't want the brake lights to be shining so brightly on a dark night where there's no ambient light to be burning the retinas of the car behind. So the tail lights will dim automatically so that they don't intrude on the visibility of the drivers behind by creating a distraction. They just create the ambient light and then if you put your brake lights on then yeah they show in a greater intensity. So having cars with lights that are reading ambient light to be sensitive to the concerns of the people around them, for example, is fascinating. Now looking at the the driver comfort, you know, energizing light systems inside the car where um, when you change the temperature in the car, the lighting in the car changes to match the temperature. So if you're going colder on the air conditioning, the lights in the car turn blue while you go colder. If you're making it warmer, the lights in the car go red. Um, the ability to speak to the car. Hey Mercedes, I'm cold. The car will increase the temperature for you. Hey Mercedes, can you open the sunroof? The sunroof will open for you, so you don't have to take your hands off the steering wheel. You know, that interaction between yourself and the car and the, the artificial intelligence that's now in the cars. You know, you, the car is learning and links with your lifestyle, so the new generation A-Class over time looks at where you are and where you go and interacts with things like your phone, for example. And if you would regularly call a family member on a Thursday night at five o'clock, on a Thursday night you'll get in the car at four fifty five and it'll say, Hey, would you like me to call your dad? Um you might That's go amazing. to the gym every Monday at five o'clock in the morning and you'll get in the car at Monday and it'll say the navigation will come up and say, "Would you like me to direct you to the gym?" Well, like we do that now, hmm. and that stuff's really, really cool. That artificial intelligence that exists in the cars right
0: now—amazing.
1: In your role in, in Or we have electric windows.
0: Then <laughs> we have, and we still we still have that 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 hasn't gone out of fashion, which is great because, and uh, the other thing that was in that car was a phone, a mobile phone. I thought that was the size uh, of a brick. The size of a brick, it was stuck down here between between the seat and the uh, center console. And, and you
1: didn't lose three points if you used it. You could just <laughs> hang it up to the
0: air and knock it into your shoulder, and away you go. Um, but yeah, these cars are certainly certainly amazing. This isn't a sales pitch for Mercedes Benz, but it's something that I've been obviously attached to, and um, you know, just the very fact that you're letting me sit in this passenger seat and maybe take me for a drive (laughs) in a minute, has got me somewhat excited. You know, when you take this show around to other parts of uh, the world, what parts of Asia do you take your team to?
1: Oh, no, we're we're everywhere. So, um, everywhere from uh, Sri Lanka to New Zealand and from Taiwan to Tasmania, so... That includes Singapore, Malaysia, Indonesia, Vietnam, Thailand, Philippines, Hong Kong, Australia, New Zealand, Brunei. We've been to Serbia in the past. Um, You know, that's uh, everywhere. You're pretty modest about it, but it is a massive fillip
0: for you to get, you know, be, I guess be given that level of responsibility by the brand because nothing happens in Mercedes-Benz world, unless it's approved, <laughs> you know, by the brand, and the brand is in Stuttgart, Germany, and you know, you had to work pretty hard for that. But it's a massive feather in your cap that they respect you that much to do that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I am definitely not complacent about the responsibility that we've been given, and at some point, I will sit back and reflect on on what we are achieving. But at the moment, it's really just. You know, part of the work that I do and I love doing it and I love uh, being able to speak with confidence. As I said, I don't, I don't I can't talk about something I don't like. I can't yeah. talk about something I don't believe in and you know, I can sit in this car right here and, and tell you I love it because it's amazing and I can hit a PXG Golf Club and tell you it's incredible and worth the money because I believe it. But, uh, you know, I couldn't do it if I didn't believe it.
0: If you're looking for an ambassador, He's a guy.
1: <laughs> but it's got to be good. It's got to be good. <laughs> now, just
0: on that part of um, being an ambassador and being charged with responsibility of the brand, every time that the Grand Prix comes to town in the last uh, good chunk of years, or f- for as long as I can remember, you get the opportunity to talk to the Mercedes-Benz Formula One drivers and interview them.
1: Yeah, that's... What's, uh, what's that like? One of the responsibilities... Uh I guess people get nervous about speaking to to high-profile people, and uh, uh, the other part of the equation, I guess, is that I understand motorsport, mm. the ins and outs of it, and and I've I've known Lewis for ten years. I met him first when we were in the UK in '96, and uh, you know, there's some there's some level of familiarity when you see two people that have something in common talking to each other yeah I guess that's why ex-footballers make great interviewers to current footballers why you see cricket players commentating on the cricket and you know that when you when you see someone that belongs in a dressing room or on a football field or at a racetrack the people that you're talking to I think when you see that they, they relax a little bit because mm. there's a a level of, ah, well, you know, you know what's going on right here. You know, and you'll hear them say quite often, well, you know yourself in this environment, this happens. Mm -hmm. So, so I think you can sometimes get better results if you're asking questions for when you know what to ask because you have been there and done that. So, Mm. um, yeah, interviewing Lewis is okay. I mean, he's just another driver really to me. He's obviously five-time world champion, but, um, and and you do have to be careful because you can upset them. You don't want to be that guy that asks a question that makes them walk out of an interview and makes global global headlines. But, um, you know, at the end of the day, that to me is a big responsibility because at any point you could literally ask a question that's not on the run sheet, for example, and and create... Um, a media furor, exactly, and mm-hmm. and and that's a great responsibility that they trust you enough to follow the script and do the things that you need to do. But but I I enjoy that stuff. Um, I enjoy asking questions. I remember, um, you know, uh, it wasn't scripted, but Lewis suddenly mentioned something about, you know, he'd had a holiday. I said, "What did you do on your holiday?" He said he went surfing. I mentioned he I'd seen it on his Instagram that he'd been surfing. You know can he see himself riding 30-foot waves, you know, is he, had he, uh, it was when Mick Fanning had just seen the shark at J-Bay and Bay. <laughs> punched the shark and I said something along the lines of, you know, if there were sharks out there, would you, you know, would you punch a shark and, you know, we kind of had this unexpected colloquial conversation and we kind of forgot that there were people around us, 300 people watching us, it was just two blokes sitting on bar stools having a chat about surfing and sharks <laughs> and... And I think he liked that. Yeah. And the people afterwards said they kind of felt that they were in on someone else's conversation. I think that's what a great interview is about.
0: As someone you know that's in the motorsport game, you know, you've had a fair degree of insight into Formula One, another world. You know, what's what's that world like? You know, what what, what what's a Lewis Hamilton going to go through on a race day? From your from
1: what you know. Now is now is he is who he is it's slightly different because there's a routine there's a the the people around him his team of people they know what he wants they know what he likes they know when he needs to be alone and they know when that people can talk to him so i guess in the early days it's a little bit harder because you don't know what people like what they want how they'll react when they need to be whisked away or you know when they need a bathroom break or a drink of water or whatever it is so Mm -hmm. i guess learning what people like is the hard thing. Lewis is a world champion, a multiple world champion, perhaps the greatest of all time, because he's got a team of people around him who support him in that environment completely. Mm -hmm. The difference is that once you get in the car and the people disappear and you put the visor down, then you're on your own. Mm. You are completely on your own, the rest is up to you. But um, out of the car, It's intense. like it's just interviews after interviews and and literally he's just being led around doing what he's told to do. But the people that schedule these interviews and, and take him to these public appearances know that he needs this much time for the gym on these days and he needs this much time for sleeping and he needs this much time for whatever else it is that Lewis needs to do, making music or doing his social media by the river or whatever. So, you know, they work together and they present him with a timetable I don't even present it they'll just tell his PA and his PA ushers him around so
0: in the car at lunchtime we were talking about uh, some of the sensors and uh, the technology that is in the car what's he faced with once he's driving what's what's talking to what who's talking to who you know in that whole Formula One team environment what does that sort of come across like to you the
1: the scary thing is we'll never actually know what's well the extent of what's going on but We do know that there are real-time sensors on the car that are sending information via Wi-Fi to the pit wall, which is sending that information via satellite link directly back to the base in Brackley in the UK, where there are up to 90 people at computers literally analyzing that information in real time to make suggestions on improving performance or perhaps even improving strategy or preventing some sort of mishap. And that's happening for each car in real time. And that's the stuff that the car is sending. That's not the people at the track who are also analysing information. And then there's also Lewis who's analysing what the car is doing and then making changes to the car to assist in the performance of the car. So there's the people at the track, there's the people in England and Lewis in the car, all assessing information. Lewis might be complaining about oversteer, for example, the engineer will be the only point of contact the guys around him might say well the rear tires are overheating the guys in england might talk to the guys on the pit wall and say we think the tires are overheating because the the torque is increased at the moment because the battery is getting hotter Um, or for whatever reason but that's something that only they can see because they've got the battery temperatures on them and perhaps the answer is then for lewis to find some more cool air so the information would come back that he needs to cool the car somehow or mm. perhaps wind the usage of the battery down so it doesn't get as hot but there's 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 no surplus of people they're not they're not sitting there um waiting for something to do they're all actually doing something.
0: The part where you explain 90 people you know sitting in Brackley in England which is the home base of the um, Mercedes, F1. Mercedes F1 team. Talking to the guys in Australia is just mind blowing. Quite
1: well, everywhere in the world? Everywhere in the world, yeah. In real time, so yeah. to, you know, if they're at a night race in Singapore, or if they're at a in Mexico or wherever they are, those people are on You're on shift v- duty. Yep,
0: that's fantastic. Mate, um, you know, is there anything else that you want to discuss and cover? You know, I've tried to, you know, cover the the world of Peter Hackett according to um. You know what I what I have known and experienced. Anything else you want to talk about, mate? Uh, just my yips. Can you give me a tip on how to yeah. get those
1: four footers in?
0: Might need to come and see Gabe golf in Scottsdale. <laughs> yeah, like, you do a two pack for a short game lesson. You know, series of. Can we do a week intensive training, mate, over in Scottsdale? We're both coming. We're both coming because, uh, you know, we both a, hit a few chunks. If If golf was easy, everyone would be doing it professionally. It's a hard game. All we can do is enjoy it, enjoy the time that we have to do it. And I certainly enjoyed my time playing with you today. It's not something that we've done in a very long time. We've talked about it a lot, and we should do it more often because um, it was fun. Pete, so it's been inspirational for me to see and hear about your world. And if you're listening to this, And you have a young person in your life that, you know, is looking to find their way and, you know, become a professional golfer or become a professional business person or a sports person or or grow into something, let them listen to podcasts like this because, you know, you hear a story like this and it really does show you a lot of insight into what it takes mentally, personally um, and professionally to achieve at a very good level, at a very high level. And the man sitting here beside me, Pete Hackett, has, has done that, and I've watched it for 20 years. And uh, it's very impressive, mate. And I appreciate your time on the My Love of Golf podcast. As I said before, let's do it again soon. And um, until then, play good golf, mate. Play keep, good golf. Keep swinging. Keep swinging. All right, now let's go and take this car for a drive, right? Are you driving or me? We're both driving. Yes.